Blog Talk Radio. Archangels, Ghosts, and Bigfoot, oh my, it's just another night for Supernatural Girls. Real stories, real answers to life's biggest supernatural mysteries. And now, for another exciting interview with paranormal experts from this world and others, here's your host, paranormal researcher Patricia Baker, on the one, the only, Supernatural Girls. Welcome, everyone, to another exciting episode of Supernatural Girls Radio. And I don't know why that music is playing again, so let me see. They wanted to test it. Thanks for listening. It just just keeps wanting to play over and over again. You know, I told you the board was going to be kind of weird tonight, and it is. We're still in retrograde the last few days of it. Yes, we are. We're getting our panties kicked, that's all. Ah, welcome to Supernatural Girls Radio, everybody. I'm your host, Patricia Baker, and I'm here with probably visitors from other dimensions, as well as my very famous co-host, Patricia Kirkman. Here we are, Patricia, officially starting the show without the music replaying. How about it? How are you? I'm doing great. It's a beautiful day here. It's the nicest day we've had in ages. Nice and warm, subtle breeze. Oh, I'm almost afraid to hold my breath for fear it's going to go away, but it's been beautiful all day. Oh, good. And we had a nice sunny one here, too. It actually got up above 40. That was an exciting moment. And uh, we have a great guest tonight, do we not? One of our favorite people. We've had him on before, and every time we have a wonderful show. His name is Nicholas Pearson, and he has got an extraordinary new book. It is called Stones of the Goddess, Crystals for the Divine Feminine. We're going to get into a lot of why the Divine Feminine is so important today and all of the crystals that you can use to attune yourself to this very powerful and ancient energy. But first, PK, you've been busy looking at the numbers, so do tell what's happening, what's going on. Well, we've got a mixed bag here. We're taking a look at, this is the end of the retrograde. Oh, thank you, God. Because it has been a horrible one. It's been kicking everybody from the heels of their feet to the back of their necks. But it's nice because of the fact that it is the beginning of the spring equinox. And as I say, the last day of Mercury retrograde. Thank you, God. And we've got this wonderful super moon that's going to take place tonight. And those are good things. So it's going to be our first day of spring. What more could we ask for? Except we have to take another look at what's going on with the world. Strange things, strange things as usual. Ah, that's a fact. People just don't get it. They're not paying attention. (laughs) What What, what is wrong? A couple more days left (laughs) of this month. People are thinking it's going to get better, it's going to get perfect, but we're just getting our toes kind of dragged in the mud before we get smacked in the mud pile, because oh, next boy. month's going to be a bugger. But right mm. now, we were taking, we were talking earlier today about Kellyanne uh, Conway and how well she's worked with Trump and 
how well her husband's working at destroying her. It's, yeah, uh, what is what a love that's fest horrible. that is. Ah, well, I took a look at both of them, and mm-hmm. the most important thing to take a look at here is Kellyanne is in a sixth year, and it's all about family, family tech situations, and wanting life to be perfect. Chart says it's a five, and I'm going to gamble on it, and I'm going to say what I want to say. But Kellyanne is ultra, ultra sensitive, which I was quite surprised at because of how she handles things. For her, it looks like, you know, shoulders back and she dives right in. But she's very, very sensitive and a perfectionist at how she sees things. But this is one intelligent lady. She's got everything going for her, and she always multitasks, which is great. Her husband, as I said, he is uh, all about taking a flyer on whatever he thinks he can or should. He happens to be in a five years five year, which makes him very much a risk taker. He's stepping into things that he really ought to step back from before it ends up being a Donnybrook. And I have to laugh. They were married in 2001. She was in a six-year. Marriages are made or broken in sixes or twos. He was ah. in a five, five, sensual, sexual, yes, let's get married. But I have to laugh at one of the statements she made. No one knows who I am because of my husband. They know he who he is because of me. Mm. I thought that was a very interesting. Very telling. So, oh, yes, it does. Yes, it does. And she always multitasks. She's doing two things at one time, always. Can't get away from it. But this is one smart lady. Well, She's got a gift of so- gab, but Go ahead. Well, I was just saying that, you know, we're going to be talking about the divine feminine and the feminine aspect of power tonight. And I find it so disturbing. Now, I don't care what people in our audience feel for or against Trump. This is not about that. What this is about is a very powerful woman. She does a good job at what she's doing. And here is her husband, her very own husband, turning around (laughs) And destroying or attempting, I should say, attempting to destroy her career. Because as we were discussing before, when you have mm-hmm. a turncoat like that, I mean, somebody who will stab you in the back, <laughs> even poor. if she didn't work at her, this particular job that she has in the White House, who would want to hire her knowing that her husband is capable of such treachery? To me, it is the ultimate betrayal to have a, a so-called partner who is backstabbing in that manner. And I think it's important to talk about, because again, we're talking about the divine feminine tonight that has been oppressed and repressed for, for thousands of years. Mm -hmm. And now we're seeing this again. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. And I like the way that stepped up to the plate and said, made the point that he's only famous because of me. He's in an attorney. They have a lovely home and, and all this, but nothing that, I've seen where he's concerned anywhere near equals what she is or who she is. Yes, exactly. So, the man should get down and kiss her on the fanny because she is one super lady. Whether you like her politics or not has nothing to do with it. She's a go-getter. Right. She works hard. And she doesn't take prisoners. She just goes for it. The one thing about her, I will say, not uh, only is she intelligent, he is super intelligent too, but his chart is about me, my, and I. Where she's and and of course it shows by his comments. 
It most certainly does, but it's treachery of the worst kind, and it's you know I think it's it's very sad that uh, that she has to tolerate that kind of thing. But I don't know what's going to happen. You think she's going to get a divorce? You know what? Because of the year she's in, anything is possible. Because relationships are made or broken in twos or sixes, she is in her sixth year. He and his five, this is the same combination they had when they got married. Now, the bottom line is, what goes up must come down. So, things are alike. Yeah, isn't that interesting? Yeah. It's each end of the spectrum. So, it's going to be a rather interesting situation ongoing here. No question about it. And, of course, good work. With all this going on in the atmosphere, shall we say? <laughs> Ooh, look out. I think if I were yeah. he, I'd double check to know where my luggage is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I better polish it up, huh? Uh-huh. <laughs> I think so. Ready to go. Oh, goodness. Well, thanks for uh, taking a look at all that, PK. Good work. Oh, and if yeah. you want your own numerology session with Patricia Kirkman. You can go to patriciakirkman.com or you can go to supernaturalgirlswithaz.com and you can find PK at either one of these sites and you can make an appointment for your own personal reading, which I highly recommend. And if you would like a soul realignment reading, you can contact me at supernaturalgirls.com. I also have my new candles. And now that Haley has returned from Germany... Uh, While she was on spring break, she said she had a great time. She's ready to get back to work. We're going to put those candles up on the website. Yeah, they're very, very intense because they were put together by the one and only Katrina Raspold. And I've talked Mm -hmm. about her on the show. She's been a guest. She is a bruja and a carandismo, and she is very powerful. So let me tell you what. These candles are the bomb. You need to take a look at them, see if they're right for you. Very powerful. So we have some very interesting paranormal news. That we do. Oh, make sure you go to our Facebook page, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter so you can keep up with all of what's happening because a lot is coming out. One of the stories I was very, very taken with, and I know you are too, because we're watching all of the people that have gone missing. And mm-hmm. there, there was a story about two men in Iceland And I highly recommend that you go and read that story because it's not usual that we hear about this kind of thing happening in Iceland. And yet it did mirror some of the same background that we've been hearing Mm -hmm. about young men going missing in the United States in urban areas. And I know this is being followed by David Polites, also being followed by detectives that are going to be on our show next week. They are the ones yes. that have investigated the smiley face killers and the hunt for justice. They mm-hmm. were on Oxygen Television. They're coming on our show next week to talk about these people that have gone missing. So make sure you watch those uh, those shows on Oxygen. They're really good, very compelling. We want to get to the bottom of this. We think there's more involved than just uh, murderers out there. There's something paranormal involved with all of this. I guarantee you that. And in Iceland, they couldn't even get to the bottom of it there, could they? I mean, if you read mm-hmm. this story, nope. 
you'll see they tried to beat confessions out of these people, but they really couldn't figure out what happened, and they never found these missing men. So do take a look at that on our Facebook page. Make sure you take a look at the Oxygen series, the Smiley Face Killers, the Hunt for Justice. As mentioned, those detectives are coming on our show next week. Get your questions ready for them. This is your chance to talk to them and see what they have to say about what they found Now what we're going to do is dig a little deeper than they did on the show. We're going to go behind the scenes and find out what else they know about the Smiley Face Killers. Right. And that's going to be a great show, as all of our shows are. And there were also a number of stories about interdimensionals. And these are interdimensionals that you don't usually hear about. So these are descriptions of things that children provided, and they are unlike any other ETs or uh, people from other dimensions that we have ever heard of. I mean, things that look like a giant shrimp, things that look like an alien but with red hair, almost clown-like. I mean, go and read these stories. They are phenomenal. Mm -hmm. And we got them from one of our favorite sites, Mysterious Universe which carries tremendous paranormal news. Brent Swanson was the author of these two articles. There are graphics. There are photographs. There are all kinds of things there. Make sure you go to our Facebook page and take a look. As you know, interdimensionals are a very hot topic. And Mm -hmm. we're just beginning to wrap our minds around the fact that it's not just ETs that have been visiting us. It is other things as well. So, This is a a great opportunity to read about it all in one place on our Facebook page. So, tonight, we have, as I mentioned, one of our very great guests that we love so much Mm -hmm. because he is Mr. Knowledgeable about crystals, and he writes the best books on crystals and how to work with them, and his new book is incredible, Stones of the Goddess, Crystals for the Divine Feminine. Now, Nicholas is an expert in crystals. He began teaching crystal workshops in high school. He studied mineral science at Stetson University while pursuing a degree in music. He also worked for several years at the Gillespie Museum, home to the largest mineral collection in the south, in the southern United States, actually. So, I can't wait. All right, we're going to bring him on. Nicholas, welcome to the show. Hello, hello. Thanks for having me back on. So oh, we're tickled. Yeah, it's our <laughs> pleasure. And and I wanted to say, you know, everybody needs to get this book just for the photographs because they're so mm-hmm. magnificent. Oh, my God. Beautiful, beautiful photos. Well, what possessed you to write this book, Nicholas? You know, this kind of started out as one of those little tiny inklings that just wouldn't leave me alone. Um, I was actually working on other projects, plural, as I always am. Um, I'd been uh, wrapping some things up for my Reiki manual that came out last year when this this idea came to me, just kind of looking through older texts. Lately, I've been on this kick where I've been going to um, early modern and pre-modern literature about the use of gemstones, especially in their sort of more curative and, and occult properties and you see a lot of talismanic gemstones that are inscribed with particular figures or symbols or um, you know uh, characters out of myth and history and folklore alike 
and it's it's amazing. The number of these relate to the sort of symbolic language of the divine feminine. And even in today's world where we have this sort of changing landscape, a, you know, a, a greater recognition of the imbalance of power between masculine and feminine, um, we see more and more crystals emerging that kind of re- resonate with the, the new and changing face of the goddess herself. So um, although it was never really my intention to write this book, it, it came through nonetheless. I put other projects aside and I made space for it in my life. Gosh, well, it's an incredible... Lucky us. That you <laughs> Just loved it. Lucky us now, that you did so. Yes, we're blessed. Now, if you could please talk to us about the power of the divine feminine, the goddess, and why it's so important that we pay attention to this now. Absolutely. So, you know, first and foremost, um, I want to say that we, we don't have to have a, a strict polytheist kind of worldview to relate to the divine feminine. Um, even if we look at maybe the hermetic teachings, we kind of see that all of creation is first conceived of in the mind of the divine, whether we call that God or goddess or creator or the great spirit or the flying spaghetti monster, it doesn't really matter. Um, but this idea of the principle of mentalism says that we are all first ideas in the mind of creator. Um, and then the subsequent principles teach us about things like um, you know, the principle of correspondences, as above, so below, as below, so above, and so on and so forth. And eventually we get to the principles of polarity and gender, and they tell us that all things kind of either contribute to or participate in these sort of spectra of energy. So if we have this sort of in, you know, inconceivably great, this ineffable, vast, infinite idea of the divine, mm-hmm kind of break it into smaller pieces and understand the full spectrum that comes out of it. So there'll be things that fall on that spectrum that we might personify as being more male or more female or neither or both. And um, uh, the way Nicholas, the may I just interrupt gone, you? Let me just interrupt you sure. for a second. Can you just move the microphone a little bit away from your mouth because we're getting some feedback. Let's see if right. that'll help because we want to make sure that we can hear what you're saying because it's so important. Um, because as you mentioned, you know, in your book, the... Uh, this goddess energy has really been uh, oppressed for millennia. So and now it appears to be resurfacing. You're even noticing crystals coming forward that we can work with that were a bit hidden before. So, again, why now? What do you think's happening? Well, you know, the, the pendulum swings back and forth in, in all things, whether it's that idea of divine masculine, mm-hmm. divine feminine, um, or even between night and day, there's a rhythm that all things follow. And so we've been, we've been kind of tilted on too far, too far in the direction of divine masculine and, and very broken and toxic divine masculine at that. And, you know, this is, this is a power that is systematically oppressing uh, great big swaths of humanity, including women, people of color and so on and so mm-hmm. forth. So, you know, the goddess is infinite. She is eternal. She is ever present and she is always with us. And she's here to guide us through this period of healing that we all need to undergo. She's here to help us recognize the oneness if we're all first ideas in the mind of creator and an idea never leaves its source and we're always with the great mother. So the sooner we recognize that, the sooner we see that the divine feminine becomes the great equalizer of all people, no matter where we are, what we do in life, where we come from, where we're going, you know, that current of the divine feminine and the divine masculine are within each of us. And so by... Yeah, it's just it's interesting because, you know, we have revered 
the the male uh, consciousness, the divine uh, masculine, for so long. Because I think some of it is it's ingrained in us that that's what gets things done. That's the you know the the power. Yet the divine feminine has its own power, and it's a it's a completely different power. It's a completely different force. So for all of us to be able to embrace it, I think we need to understand that it's its own power and how it works. So I don't know if you want to talk about that at all, but if you can, it'd be great. But I'm going to have to ask you to change your headset again because you're still coming through kind of warbled. Right. So uh, go ahead and change that out, and PK and I are going to talk amongst ourselves while you do that. But, PK, you know what I'm talking about here, right, that you know, we tend to feel that in order to get things done, we have to emulate that masculine consciousness, right? Right. But so, we don't need to. But we don't need to. But then what That's right. you know, what does the divine feminine look like? Because I know oh, when you and I were growing up a million years ago, right? Uh <laughs> we won't say exactly well oh, apropos. But it was quite a while ago. Uh you know, yeah. women were still pretty much in a subservient position. You know, the men were out going mm-hmm. out to work, the yeah. The women were at home. Women, so it's a very yeah, we're, different way to grow up. Well, women were in the kitchen wearing aprons, okay? we right. Then we moved to the living room with wearing our pearls and vacuuming. And then we right. were able to step out of the house and be equal to the man on the street. Wasn't that wonderful? And I don't know. I think they got talked into two jobs. <laughs> well, we, that, was a, that was a given because... We're the ones that have the children, so we have to take care of the children. Did you remember that? Oh yeah. See, that's what I mean. <laughs> Two jobs. So, but but yeah, I mean, it was a whole different way of growing up, and I think you encapsulated that beautifully. So now we're coming to this this level of really trying to wrap our minds around the divine feminine, the goddess energy. What is it? How do we embrace it? How does that energy get things done? Okay. How does that energy move? forward with us so nicholas you back with us with your headset i sure am oh you sound so much better thank you yay okay so you've been listening to us jabber on about this and you understand the question that we're asking is we want to know more about how the divine feminine power works how does it move things forward because it is so different from the masculine consciousness well you know it, it it kind of harms us when we try to compare divine feminine and divine masculine, the God and the goddess as parallel structures, because they're really not, you know, where we expect things to be linear and regular and um, sort of structured in a way through the lens of the divine masculine that we kind of see in most of the world's religions, the divine feminine works differently. It is intuitive. It is cyclical. It is something that works with the ebb and flow of the natural forces, the changing of the seasons, the tides of our own blood. And so you know, part of what we do through connecting to the divine feminine is learning to take a step back and listen and observe and be present. Um, and that already is often enough to kind of wake us up to what's not working in life on the, you know, the micro or the macro scale um, and give us the opportunity to make some changes. Uh, we also have to recognize that, you know, power and force and all these other things that we, we tend to ascribe as dominant masculine things are once all attributes of the divine mother. Um, you know, the, the earliest evidence of anything that resembled religion among humankind, even, even before uh, Homo sapiens. Um, these, these religious practices were purely matriarchal. There was no presence of divine 
masculine. And yet people still went to war. People still fought battles. People still had to have those sort of martial energies, but they were ascribed to the divine feminine rather than divine masculine. And we have to recognize that those two things exist concurrently. In, in myself, there's divine masculine and divine feminine. And in everybody else, they're there too. So we don't really have to ask how do we get things done through the divine feminine, but maybe how can we learn to improve the things we're doing by coordinating, by co-creating with the divine feminine? Well, and also because you talked about it, and that's a great answer. And also, you know, when you talk about being quiet, to listen, get your answers from the inside. Now, that is part of the divine feminine energy. It's softer. It's quieter it's it's it is different and i think a lot of it in our culture in the past has not been revered and not been respected Mm -hmm. right do you think that women are more intuitive in the divine as we think we are on day to day today you know i think that we we all kind of have that inborn skill set um, mm-hmm. but maybe because of certain social roles that are expected, you know, women are given a better opportunity to exercise those in, in many situations. But, you know, by and large, I, I think, I think we've all got it there. Yeah. Good. Very nice. Yeah. That's good oh. to know. Now, when you, you, you start talking about uh, the different stones and crystals that people can mm-hmm. use to attune. Tell us more about that. You know, how did you determine that these were crystals and stones that people could use to work with, with that energy? Well, I mean, first and foremost, let's look at the language we use to talk about the mineral kingdom and even the planet we walk upon, which is largely comprised of rock. We, we call her Mother Earth. Um, you know, we, we use language mm-hmm. like the word matrix to describe the, the, the rock substrate that minerals form in. And that word matrix is Latin for womb. Even the word for matter, all the substance we see, comes from the Latin word mater, which means mother. So we can't really separate the, the world of rock and stone and crystal and gem from the, the body of Mother Earth. So these are the part and parcel. They're the cells of the great Earth Mother. So in a way, all stone connects us to the divine feminine because all stone is part of her body, uh, just like we are. Um, you know, in the 1970s, the, the idea of the, the Gaia hypothesis gained a lot of traction, and this is, you know, very simplified states that every component of our planet, living and non-living alike, contributes to a self-regulating mechanism, much in the same way that our bodies as living organisms do that. And so... That means that, you know, we, the biological factors, the living beings, human, plant, animal, or otherwise, um, are, are connected to, are co-creating with uh, the mineral kingdom, with, you know, water, with air, with sunlight, to create kind of this larger superorganism. And, and even in science, we name this superorganism after Gaia, the goddess of the earth, uh, from Greek mythology. So um, the idea of stone being connected to the Great Mother is a very ancient one. Um, you know, the idea of, of Earth or planet as mother, as the great goddess, is probably the most widespread and primordial idea of the divine feminine that exists. And if we look at the historical record, if we look at archaeological evidence, if we look at folklore, we find a lot of gemstones that are attributed to different figures um, out, of, out of myth and folklore that, that are associated with the goddess or are themselves goddesses. So it's kind of where the project began, first looking at the, the historical precedents and then kind of translating that into the modern day. 
Well, you've got a beautiful photograph. I mean, your photographs, like I mentioned, are extraordinary. Oh, but you beautiful. have one that really caught my attention with lapis. It's a sphere of lapis, and it's it's that beautiful blue color. But this one also had white in it. So is there any significance also to working with a stone like that that's round? Because it was perfectly round. It's a sphere. It was beautiful. I mean, does, how does that affect consciousness when you start working with something like that? Well, you know, when we shape a crystal, we're not changing its fundamental energy because those are things that are determined by its formation process, its chemical composition, the crystal structure, and all those happen at the sort of micro level. So no, no amount of bending, scraping, or otherwise changing the external surface will affect those. However, um, the overall shape of the stone can affect the way the energies are distributed. So if we look oh. at something like a sphere, so if we look at something like a sphere, it it emanates energy very softly in all directions at once, but also that shape is similar to the shape of our planet, of the sun, the moon, the stars, um, and has been for a long time a very feminine kind of symbol. Like the goddess itself, it has no beginning and no ending. So symbolically, it can tune us into those tides uh, of the you know the cycle cycles that we associate with the Great Mother herself. Wow. Well, it's that was. <laughs> Beautiful photograph of that piece of lapis. So you, you talk about cleansing your stones. What what do you recommend for people? Because I know I have about, I don't know, how many crystals, maybe 500 here that I work oh, wow. with. And But mm-hmm. how do you recommend cleansing them? I mean, let's say you, you want to begin work on your connection with the divine feminine. Then what do you suggest? Well, ideally, if it's a stone that we have a deep working relationship with, it's one we're probably going to cleanse pretty regularly. Um, and the method we use should be conscious of a little bit of mineral science. You know, if you have a beautiful piece of malachite and you want to cleanse it with salt or water over time, the beautiful polish on that piece of malachite is going to be diminished because it's just too soft to be cleansed in that way. Likewise, if you have a, a favorite piece of fluoride or kunzite and you leave it in bright sun, it's going to lose its color. Um, but there are a few methods that work really well for all of our stones. Um, breath is one of my favorites to use in my daily practice, and it's one I've written about in several other books, so I didn't put it in this one. Um, but you could also do you know, burning sacred plants, whether that's sage or cedar or palo santo or maybe something that grows indigenous to your area. Um, you could use sound, like singing bowls or chimes. The human voice works pretty darn well. Um, most of us have that around with us everywhere we go. Um, and then mm-hmm. in the book, I also have a few alternative methods, some that are a little bit more ritualized, something that can maybe help you cultivate that relationship with a particular stone. It might not be great for cleansing maybe five or 600 at a time, um, but it's great when you want to forge a, a, a deeper bond between you and a very special piece in your collection. So you can basically smudge your, smudge your crystals is what you're talking about. You can smudge yeah. them with sage. Or, that's cool. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, because I was always told, you know, take them out in the moonlight, and by gosh, by the time you gather them up and get them out there, and then you have to bring them back in the next day, it's a job in itself. It sure <laughs> is. And, and, you know, interestingly enough, if we look at the physics of crystal energy and crystal healing, the if we look at the sort of map of electromagnetic frequencies that are in moonlight, it's not really different than any other source of visible light. So from a physics-based perspective, sunlight or moonlight is no different than the incandescent lighting you probably have in your house. So it's, it's actually mm-hmm. the ritualized act of t- 
taking the crystals out there. It's our own mind that is causing those shifts in the energies we're perceiving our stones. The, the moonlight itself is not any more mystical than what you've got in the bedroom. Uh-huh. Oh, thank you, God. <laughs> and <Nicholas. Yeah. laughs> oh. Oh, really? Very oh, okay. good. You're talking also about how do you program them? And, and this is a big question that I've seen mm-hmm. come across. Uh, our email from a lot of people. They want to know. I mean, it's, it's nice to have a beautiful crystal. Oh, it's beautiful. It's nice. It sits on my table. Now what? You know, how do I actually work with it? How, I know how, now I know how to cleanse it, but how do I program it or how do I listen to it? It could be either one, I guess. Yeah, so um, there are a lot of terms that get kind of thrown out there fairly interchangeably, and there's some overlap between them. So we talk about cleansing, we talk about consecration or programming or charging or, you know, otherwise imbuing our stones with some sort of purpose or intention. So for me, um, programming is the act of extending that invitation to co-create with your crystal. It's not installing a program that you are forcing it to do. I'm not downloading an app into the crystal. It's maybe a, a decent analogy until we take into consideration the fact that stones are living beings in their own right, maybe not in a biological sense, but in a spiritual sense, they have consciousness. So when I do my sort of programming techniques, I, I tend to allow them to be a little softer, a little less rigid, a little more open to whatever input I'm going to get on the stone tent. Um, you'll find some instructions for doing this in the book, but the simple way is take the stone that matches the intention, your word of affirmation, um, and then you know, find a way to project that into the stone while still leaving the stone room enough to accept or reject it as needed. You know, maybe that's just not the right stone. If you're really working on manifesting abundance and you've chosen your favorite piece of, um, I don't know, maybe amethyst, that, that might be the right stone in some cases, but more than likely there's a better stone suited to that. So we have to kind of tune in to where we're coming from as, where, as well as where the stone can take it. Now, we've seen a lot of symbol work done with water. And there are symbols you can actually write on your glass, or you can actually now buy these symbols and paste them on your glass of water. And it's supposed to imbibe the water with the energy of that symbol. Now, can you do the same thing with a crystal, if it agrees to it, with its consciousness? Yeah, I don't see why not. You know, ultimately these acts of, of cleansing or charging are, are subject to the, the language of our subconscious. So if you're a more verbal person, maybe you'll choose words. If you're um, a more symbolic person, you might choose something that is either a concrete or an abstract symbol that represents the intention you're working on. Um, I've seen amazing things where people have created sigils and use those sigils to program their crystal. Um, you know, the sky is really the limit with how you want to work on that. Yeah, because that looked like a very intriguing way to work with your crystal. But I like what you're saying, that you really need to make sure you have a crystal that wants to work with this with you. And it may not. So how do you know? I mean, do you just intuitively feel that there's a simpatico vibration? Or how do you know? Because you're the expert. I mean, well, for me personally, it's it's really more in- really more instinctual. It's not necessarily something that I'm going to get a, a a voice in my head clearly saying yes or no. In most cases, sometimes that does happen. Um, but, you know, we all have those psychic faculties, so you just have to learn which language yours is speaking and then, mm-hmm. you know, learn to perceive subtle energies through that particular filter. Um, you know, one of my okay. best friends, her, 
her symbolic language is show me white for yes and show me black for no, and she can close her eyes, and, and there's the answer. Sometimes it arrives as a screen, solid white, solid black. Other times there'll be um, abstract symbols that, that might represent more than just the yes or no and kind of um, add on to that. So that might be a method that you find, but it also might be a physical sensation in your body. It might be a sound that you hear or even a scent that arrives to you. Um, there are so many different ways we perceive that subtle information. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, that's a question, again, that we get a lot is in how to work mm-hmm. with your crystals that way. So that's very helpful information. So as, as you go through the book, I mean, obviously you have all of this great information about the crystals themselves, and some of them we've heard of. Some of them are a little more unusual. So tell us about some of the unusual ones that our audience may not have heard of before. That was one of the things I was most excited to do was actually go through some of those mm-hmm. uh, less well-known stones when I wrote the book. Um, I definitely stuck to some basics we're all familiar with, agate and some forms of jasper and jade mm-hmm. and amethyst, for example. But I wanted to kind of touch upon some lesser-known members of the mineral kingdom or maybe some more newly discovered ones um, to kind of tune in to the, the new and changing face of this divine feminine energy. Um, so one of the ones that stole my heart years ago, almost a decade ago now, um, are called uh, cherry blossom stones. Um, in Japanese, we call them uh, sakurishi or sakurasaki, which just means cherry blossom stone. And they're these really complex intergrowths of um, mica that have replaced uh, another mineral, cordiorite or iolite. And they have this pattern in them that actually looks like petals of a cherry blossom and there's a local yeah there's a local belief in japan that the stones are actually found outside of kyoto which is you know renowned for its cherry blossoms um that the the kami the spirit or the divine essence of the blossoms themselves um dwells within these stones most of the year and only emerges when the trees are in full bloom so again it, it kind of draws upon this idea that and there's an imminent divine, that divinity is present in the natural world, and many of the world's religions and, and spiritual paths that honor the divine feminine see the world as innately um, animated, alive, embodied with the divine. And so these stones help connect us to that idea of springtide beauty, something that we tend to associate with, um, you know, aspects of the goddess. And there is actually a specific goddess of the cherry blossoms who is, you know, by proxy associated with the stones. Oh my! Another one that was really, yeah. There's another stone that was really fun to put into the book. Um, <clears throat> was uh, a variety of obsidian called midnight lace obsidian. It's not one I really see in metaphysical books. Um, it mostly comes from the Caucasus Peninsula. Um, some of it's found in the Pacific Northwest as well. Um, but it has these fine bands of transparent, almost like a, a smoky gray obsidian with deep dark bands in it that are opaque. Mm-hmm. Um, one of its names is also lamellar obsidian from the, the word lamella in Latin, which means uh, plate or flake. Um, and it's got this really mysterious kind of energy. It, it really feels as if it is the, the veil between the worlds, an expression that actually comes from um, veiled Isis as the embodiment of the unseen world. And we on this side of the veil can never really know the profundity or the depth, the true face of the divine. And so here's a stone that allows us to sort of feel our way through. Even with eyes closed, we can palpate and and get a a sense of what's on the other side of that veil. What is on the side of mystery rather than the side of the material plane. 
Mm. Powerful. Oh, my gosh. Well, there's so much more we need to talk about. We're going to take a very short commercial break. We're going to come back. And if you have a question for Nicholas, you can call in at 563-999-3539. That's 563-999-3539. You are listening to Supernatural Girls Radio, and we will be right back. Your property tax bill. Have you seen it lately? It's frightening. Your property taxes are going up while your home value is going down. It's time to fight back and win. For the real truth about the property tax system, get Attorney Pat Quintilian's book, Are You Getting Screwed on Your Property Taxes? How to Find Out and How to Fix It. Attorney Quintilian answers all your questions and gives you the facts you need to fight a property tax bill that is spiraling out of control. You'll also read about what happens to property owners who don't check their property records, only to find out too late they're taxed on square footage, fixtures, and even buildings that they don't own. Is this happening to you? Learn your rights. Buy Attorney Pat Quintilian's book today. Are you getting screwed on your property taxes? How to find out and how to fix it. Available on Amazon.com. Are you ready for a new experience of freedom and powerful connection? Would you like a positive, effortless change in your life? Then come to CosmicFusion.com, where we offer the most advanced energy clearing and expansion techniques in the world with a quantum vortex energy to activate your divine blueprint and life's purpose. When your soul leads the way with cosmic fusion and quantum vortex energy, you can break clear of past difficulties and blocks with the power of the source. With cosmic fusion, the source energy does the work for you. It's easy and effortless. Listen to our free meditation right from our Cosmic Fusion website, the Cosmic Code Meditation. Sign up for one of our interactive webinars today. Come to Cosmic Fusion, www.kosmicfusion.com to experience an effortless awakening and transformation. Are you ready for an upgrade? Are you ready for a new experience of living in the fifth dimensional magic and powerful connection? Then visit CosmicFusion.com today. CosmicFusion.com Pure essential oils, specialized minerals, and a revolutionary anti-aging technology. Astridian combines the best of all scientifically proven ingredients in easy-to-use creams, lotions, and concentrated serums. Estridian's advanced line of products take your skin to a new level of being healthy and beautiful. We offer a variety of collections that address all your skin concerns. The Essential Anti-Aging Series treats and moisturizes your skin for a long-lasting, younger look. The Multivitamin Series promotes healthy skin with high-quality vitamins and minerals. The Sports Series restores skin from cellular damage and stress. Astridian also offers a revitalizing solution for hair and a professional series for doctors and medical spas. Visit astridian.com today and begin your new journey to healthy, beautiful, youthful skin. Astridian, beyond your expectations.
Welcome back, everyone, to Supernatural Girls Radio. I'm your host, Patricia Baker. I'm here with my co-host, PK, and our terrific guest tonight, Nicholas Pearson. Before we get back to the interview, I just wanted to mention that one of our sponsors, Astridian, is continuing to offer a 10% off coupon. Just use Supernatural, and they'll take 10% off your order, and they will send you some free samples. And this is a terrific skincare line, very high mm-hmm. mineral content. So in case you're following any health news, you are knowledgeable about the fact that it is mineral deficiencies that are creating a lot of issues for people today. So anyways, it's a great skincare line. We're happy to have them as a sponsor 10% off with the code SUPERNATURAL, and they will send some free samples out to you. So here we are talking about these crystals that are so unusual. So, Nicholas, take us through a few more of these that you've found to put in the book. Yeah, so I think one that, if anyone spends enough time with me, is going to know I'm really passionate about is a material that's called Ye Ming Zhu in Chinese. And the name translates as evening shining pearl, or more poetically, the luminous pearl. And originally believed just to be the substance of myth, um, it, it tends to be found in natural form as a variety of either fluorite or calcite. This could be any particular mineral or rock, so long as it has uh, a phenomenon called persistent phosphorescence, which means taken into a dark place once, once charged by light or heat or some other source of energy. They actually glow. And although the one in the photograph in the book is a, a lab synthesized version thereof. You can find them in nature. I have a beautiful sphere of brown fluorite from Ohio that actually displays the same kind of persistent phosphorescence. And uh, when we look at some of the names that are attributed to this stone in, in Chinese mythology, one of them in particular is the Ming Yuechu, which means the bright moon pearl. And um, it's connected to the idea of this sort of cosmic light that has been taken from the heavens, the starry heavens, and brought down to earth for us to hold that light, to work with that light, to be the light that we need to illuminate the, the darkest parts of our mind, of our hearts, of our souls, and of the greater world around us. Um, so Yingming Zhu is one of those really mysterious and transformational gemstones. Now, sure to kind can, of can you spell that? I'm getting a lot of texts coming across now. People are like, how do you spell that? <laughs> yeah. So how do yeah, you spell yeah. I, so um, there are a few different ways to, to romanize, to transliterate it from Chinese. Um, the most correct way would be Y-E-H-M-I-N-G-Z-H-U. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the natural material is extraordinarily scarce, so most of what you see on the market is man-made. Some of it is even faked quite well. Um, but you can read more about that in this book. Um, I also touched upon it a bit in Crystal Healing for the Heart. Um, it's definitely a very enigmatic material, and it it really lights up a room. Now, if you, I do have a lot of questions from people here asking about, can they contact you? Let's say they wanted to get a piece of this particular mineral, and you're saying a lot of it is not the real thing. Can people contact you and ask for your help with that? Can they purchase from you? You obviously know what you're doing, and the rest of us don't. So how would people go about that? I mean, find a reputable dealer. I myself don't really sell a lot of stones. My my great love is teaching about them. Uh, retail is something I've done my time in. And, um, you know, if, if someone wants to reach out and show me a photograph, sometimes from a photograph you can tell those sorts of things, and sometimes you can't. So I'm I'm happy to give it my best try without examining it in person. Okay, terrific, terrific. Wonderful. So you you don't sell many of your own crystals yourself. 
So that's what people were asking, if they could come to you. Because obviously you're a trusted expert. And mm-hmm. so that's that makes you a valuable commodity, <laughs> Nicholas. I know there's a lot of gemstones out there that I think they've been reprocessed in some way, haven't they? Some of the ones coming out of China specifically, haven't they been ground up and then reprocessed? I mean, honestly, uh, treating gemstones is nothing new. The ancient Egyptians, ancient Greeks had methods for enhancing the beauty of their stones. Some of those practices are still in use today. About 80% of the world's colored gemstones that are used in the modern jewelry industry undergo some sort of enhancement, whether it is heating or radiation, dyeing, um, or some other format. Um, There's not a whole lot of, like, grinding and melting. When we do that, we create glass. We We don't get a gemstone out of that. Um, now, mm-hmm. many people do try to pass off glass as other things. You know, if you find beautiful teal-colored, emerald green, yellow-red obsidian, I promise you it is not obsidian. Um, in very rare instances, you get greens um, and shades of blue in in obsidian, but they're usually not very gemmy. They're usually not very bright, and if you hold them up to a light, you're, you're not going to get that beautiful um, transparent effect that we get in a lot of the man-made, quote-unquote, obsidians, which are just man-made glass. Um, but they're, you know... These are not necessarily new things, new ideas. We've been working with the mineral kingdom for hundreds of thousands of years, so it's no surprise that along the way we found ways to improve their beauty. Right. Okay. Of course, does the size of a gemstone make a difference? Is the effect of a small one, does it have the same effect as something larger? Can we still get the same information, shall we say, from the stone? Yes and no. So um, all other parameters being equal, you know, quality, whether or not there are other minerals attached to or included within it, um, and and so on and so forth, Um, the only difference we're going to perceive when it comes to size is kind of like the size of a speaker or an antenna. So, you know, the bigger the speaker, the louder it's going to be. Louder is not always better, just louder. You know, if I'm having an Mm -hmm. conversation with a friend, I can probably be heard in a whisper. But if I got to get mm-hmm. someone's attention across the parking lot, I better be shouting at the top of my lungs if I want to be heard. So it's kind right. of the same with our stones. If it's something we're going to use for, you know, personal healing and carry on us every day, we might not need a huge stone. In fact, that could be detrimental at times. Um, but if we're doing bigger work, working with a group of people, working with um, you know, maybe crystal grids to work on a whole planet, um, little teeny tiny guys are probably not going to cut it. Um, they'll they'll do something good. Um, but, you know, the, the bigger it is, the farther that signal is going to go. But other factors come into play, too. You know, quality can have um, a big effect on uh, the efficacy of our, our gems that we use, especially therapeutically. Um, you know, the, the, the shape of them might not change the fundamental energy, but, again, change the way it's distributed. So if you wanted to cut a cord, maybe something that was shaped like an egg or a sphere is probably mm-hmm. not the best tool. But something with a nice point or sharp edge would be great for it. Um, there are a lot of factors to take into consideration when selecting our crystal toolbox. Mm. You, you and mentioned uh, crystal charm bags. The size important when we use that? I think because those are, are designed to carry on a person or left in a particular location, um, smaller mm-hmm. makes it a lot more convenient. And also we have to remember that we have the principle of synergy going on when we make these sorts of charm bags or mojo pouches or grigri bags or spell pouches, whatever term we want to use. Mm -hmm. Um, 
the crystal is not the sole ingredient. We might be adding things like a slip of paper with our intention and a name or a symbol written on it. We might be throwing in herbs or salts, which, of course, is another mineral. Um, essential oils, vibrational essences, there, there are lots of ingredients we can use, and each of them is going to carry its own vibratory signature. And when we add them together, we get something that is greater than just the sum of its parts. That's wonderful. Go ahead. You have another question? I was, well, I was just going to say, for how would a person decide which is the better minerals to add or, uh, say, oils or such, to a charm bag of someone for them to carry with them? What is a better way to look for the proper stone or additive that would go in their bag? There's definitely an art form to doing this and one that you know, draws from a lot of different um, traditions to make that happen in today's world. Um, art of crafting these little charm bags or cell pouches goes back to you know, prehistory where people bundled sacred things together. Um, you see cultures all around the world with their own sort of rules and regulations for it. So mm-hmm. I would say if you're not already practicing a, a specific modality that has its it's sort of guidelines, then feel it out. There, there are plenty of great resources for looking at the vibratory signatures of our stones, look like this, for example, for our herbs, for our oils, for anything else. And so we just want to learn to kind of marry together things that are aligned almost unilaterally towards the intention that we're trying to manifest. If we try to do a whole lot of things with, with one particular working, whether it's a charm bag or a crystal grid or um, you know, a ritual, it's like having way too many browser tabs open on your computer. Some of them might load, but there's a good chance they're all going to crash. So um, okay. we want to make sure that we, we take those ingredients and make sure that we, we have a coherent message. With them. Yeah, that, that, that was my concern because of, of the unknown. And so many of us, of course, are not anywhere near as knowledgeable as you are about what we put together. And sometimes a little a little idea here can be dangerous on the other side. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's it's a lot like cooking. Sometimes we take a risk and we really enjoy it. Other times we take a risk and we've learned a valuable lesson mm-hmm. of two things that should never go in the same dish. <laughs> <laughs> right. I've been there and done that. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. What other crystals did you add to the book, Nicholas said, some of our audience and us, we may not have heard of them before. Keep going with that. It's fascinating. Yeah, so um, I was happy to include a few types of quartz that either hadn't ever been written about, at least not in a book like this, or, or hadn't been given a lot of space, um, one of which is moon quartz or girasol, um, which has a sort of milky, opalescent quality to it. Um, there's a particular variety out of Brazil that's called metamorphosis quartz that has traces of heavy metals like hafnium and barium, as well as some copper and lead, nickel, aluminum. Um, but moon quartz has this really kind of whimsical, capricious energy to it. It, it almost looks lunar. Um, the way it kind of collects light, even in a dimly lit room, reminds us of the way the, the light with the moon, with no light of its own, still shines upon us. Um, it's a great stone for kind of attuning us to what's just on the other side of that veil. Um, it is great for psychic development and also for manifestation. It can help our, our whole body, mind, and spirit, every little fiber of our being, um, 
resonate with exactly the intention you're trying to put out there, almost as if we, we embody things holographically. And that's going mm-hmm. to make us a, a clearer antenna for what it is we're trying to manifest. Um, but with relationship to the divine feminine, apart from the overtly lunar symbolism of it, it kind of embodies the, the idea of divine receptivity. Um, and um, it allows us to accept whatever it is that's being offered without necessarily having to cross boundaries. Um, it allows us to, to empty ourselves of attachment, of ego, of expectation, but still not take the, the BS the world is trying to shove down our throats constantly. So mm-hmm. um, I think it's really empowering when, you know, male, female, or otherwise, we're, we're constantly being bombarded with sensory input and, you know, opinions on how we need to be doing things. And this is a stone that allows us to receive but filter out the things that might be harmful. Oh, it sounds like a very powerful stone. Gosh, uh, is that something that people can readily get, or is that fairly rare? That that stone you just it's mentioned. It's actually pretty. It's pretty readily available these days. Most of the time, it's marketed as girasol or girasol quartz. Um, but it's also sometimes sold as moon um, quartz or metamorphosis quartz, um, and it's being mined in relative abundance in Brazil these days, as well as in Madagascar. Okay. Now, PK, you found a, a stone out in Arizona that I had never heard of before. Can you bring that up to Nicholas and ask if he knows anything about it? Because that one was unusual. It's, yeah, I was told it was called sapphire. It's a, it looks like a small cinder, the piece that I have. But when you put it up to the light, you can see color. It's almost uh, reminds you of malvolite. The way Marvelite looks when you look at this, the sapphire does the same thing, but it, it isn't as pretty uh, internal. It has like a yellow or a uh, kind of a dull yellow when you look to to the light. And it's Have you heard of uh, that one? That's sapphire, S-A-F-F-O-R-D-I-T-E? That's what I was told it was called. And yeah. it was found outside of uh, the Tucson area uh, near the New Mexico border. And some people said they found it in Safford. That was one of the reasons they called it Safferite. But question mark to both because I never saw it up until oh, about a year ago. Yeah, it's like really said, it looks exactly like a cinder. Yeah, so they are um, they belong to a class of materials that are sometimes called pseudotectites. There's a little bit of debate about the origin of all of these things that fall into this category. Um, they may be a variety of tectite, which is a, a, a natural glass formed by the collision of other stuff with Earth. So, you know, um, mm-hmm. meteorites, for example. So very famous tectites include Libyan desert glass and moldavite. Um, the likelier theory is that these are not, in fact, tectites. Um, but are a glass that's formed by very, very ancient volcanic activity. Um, And so these are probably um, obsidian that was incubated in the heart of these now extinct volcanoes. Um, You know, the the actual mountains themselves have been weathered away. um, And a lot of that, um, all of that silica was either hydrated or somehow broken down. And these gemmy bits are all that remain. Um, There are some similar varieties that are found in South America, um, but even even with the chemical analyses that have been done, it's hard to know exactly how they've formed. Um, I've never actually held one myself. So I can't really comment mm-hmm. much on their energy. Um, there's yeah. really no metaphysical literature about them except some some personal experiences that people have been able to share. Yeah. 
I think the largest one I've seen is about like my thumbnail, you know, a larger like the thumbnail. But uh, like I said, they're very unattractive. But a friend of mine would they would go out and they would collect them out in the uh, uh, New Mexico Arizona border area. And this they they had not found them up until well I guess about a year ago when she first came across them. But uh, she talked about, and this is what she called them, but she herself really wasn't all that, uh, although she stated to be knowledgeable, I don't feel she was all that knowledgeable about the information that we got back. And they're expensive, too, because I, I know oh, when yeah. you talked about that, I was like, oh, maybe I'll give it a try, and then you put me in contact with it. They were not cheap, and they're so darn no. ugly. I was like, you know what, <laughs> I think I'll pass. <laughs> Because again, you well, know, anybody think, can say anything about these stones, and you don't know how valid it is. I mean, Nicholas, when you talk about these stones, believe me, I know that you're telling us the real deal. But when exactly. it's a fairly new discovery like this, even though it may have taken some ancient powers to manifest these things, it's just it's suspect in my mind. So, anyways, that's why we wanted to know if you knew more about it, Nicholas. They're really fascinating. It's it's definitely something that's on my list to add to the collection. I'm really fascinated by natural glasses in particular. That's why the the first chapter of my first book is all about obsidian. Um, so I'm mm-hmm. I'm eager to get my hot little hands on some one day. <laughs> Good. Well, then you can tell us if they're for real. If we should bother with them or absolutely. not. Right. Absolutely. All right. Oh, get them so, to you. They're so scattered and so far in between the in the different sizes. As I said, never saw anything very large and. They look just exactly like a cinder, and whoever decided to put it up to the light to see what was inside, that where that's where it reflects uh, the a brightness or a, a light. Other than that, if you look at it, you want to pitch it out and throw it in the driveway. <laughs> right, that's what I thought when I saw it. <laughs> I know. <laughs> oh, that's funny. It's Goodness hard me. to tell. How does one know when what they're looking for? When I know different people are able to go out and look for things and come back with all these great finds, I have no idea where would never even have an idea of where to start and where to finish. I know, really. Well, that's yeah. why we need to rely on Nicholas for our, our good information. Definitely. That's for sure. Oh God, yeah, because you can spend a lot of money on on some of these things, and which is fine if you have it to spend. But you know, you want to know you're getting the real deal, and you're not getting some. You know, wool pulled over your eyes about these things. But let's talk about crystal elixirs because you do have a chapter in your book on that. How do you make those? Let's have a kind of a a short version of how to do that because those look like fun. They are a lot of fun. Um, You know, in short, it's just crystal energy plus water or another liquid in theory. Um, And then you give it enough time to transfer and then you've got a crystal elixir. So some stones are safe for direct contact with your drinking water. Many stones are not. So please look up the chemical composition. Know something about your rock before you start ingesting it. You Mm -hmm. might absolutely head over heels about galena or pyromorphite or plumbogumite. And you really want to put those in your drinking water, but they're all rich in lead and lead is really bad for you. So, um, yeah. you know, there, oh, there, yeah, there, there's potential to do great harm here. So when in doubt, leave it out. There are indirect methods of transferring <laughs> that energy. 
You could make a crystal grid and place the water in a vessel inside that grid. You could have uh, a smaller container that is dry that you put the rock inside and put that inside a bowl of water so that way there's that layer of glass between the stone and, and the, the drinking water. Um, you can also make elixirs via direct method that you don't plan on ingesting or applying topically. Um, they might be things that you're just going to use as um, you know, tools of ritual focus or otherwise somehow gifting to Mother Earth as long as we're not making the environment toxic. Um, but you know, generally speaking, most of the cautionary lists we see online are far too cautious. You know, they'll say something like ruby or sapphire, um, the mineral corundum, um, are toxic because they contain aluminum. And we know aluminum's not good for us, but if I could put ruby or sapphire in water and take the aluminum out, then it would not be a stone durable enough for jewelry. So there, there are more factors at play than just chemical composition. But, you know, again, always better to be too careful than not careful enough. Well, um, give so us an idea of some safe ones then that you know about. Yeah, well, ruby and sapphire are great examples. Aquamarine, shungite, most things in the quartz family as long as they are um, – physically stable enough. So let's say you've got a beautiful cluster of these delicate amethyst crystals. If they're not very strongly attached to their matrix, to the, the host rock, then when you get it wet, they might, they might begin to crumble. But um, as long as it's you know, otherwise structurally sound, anything in the quartz family is great to go um, and as long as we avoid something with strange minerals attached to or included within it. Um, mm-hmm. in, my, in my home here in, in in Central Florida, I have all of my water infused with shungite and aquamarine. Those are my two everyday kinds of stones that I drink mm. sun up to sundown. I make all of my tea with it. We cook with aquamarine and shungite infused water. Um, but Why do you there, use those two? Lot... Aquamarine is kind of like the, the water from the fountain of youth. It's really rejuvenating on the spiritual level and helps us kind of get back to our spiritual blueprints. Um, and one of the ways that we age is by wandering away from what our blueprints are supposed to say. Um, so when we use aquamarine water, it can translate that at the physical level too. Um, it's also very detoxifying. It's just a great stone all around. And shungite can breathe life back into water that has been very poorly treated. And sadly, pretty much all of the water we drink and, and are exposed to is very poorly treated. Um, it has lost its... Um, structural integrity and that might seem strange thinking of water as having structural integrity but water can exist basically in two broad categories we have bulk water wherein the molecules are just chaotically arranged some weak hydrogen bonds um, but nothing nothing really fancy and then we also have structured water water that exists in what's called a liquid crystal mesophase a state that's in between liquidity and crystallinity and marcel vogel the former research scientist with ibm was the uh, the leader in studying liquid crystals. He's the inventor of the original liquid crystal display. Um, he studied the effects of consciousness on the the liquid crystal mesophase that water can be in long before other people did. So, you know, he was influencing the formation of crystals from water and other liquids um, even before Dr. Emoto started taking his pictures. Sadly, wow. Vogel's work never got as well known, but, um, you know, it, it's profound stuff. Now, how do you charge your water with aquamarine and shungite? Do you put it right into the water and then let it sit overnight? How do you do that? I have a very complicated procedure. Are you ready? I'm ready. I've got a pitcher. I pour water in it. That's it. (laughs) Wait, I missed that part. You have a pitcher, you pour water in it, and then what do you do? That's it. That's it. Um, <laughs> where did, yeah. Did you put so, the I mean, gemstones in it? 
Yeah, so I use a, a British filter at home just to, you know, clean up my tap water before I consume it. And there are much fancier methods for purifying your water. If you like, you're welcome to use them. Um, and then in the bottom reservoir of that, there's space for me to put rocks that, that won't pour into my cup because of the, you know, the way the You don't want to swallow it by accident. Right. Okay. Exactly. That's an important part. Um, so there's always <laughs> yes. solution right in there. Um, you want to choke on you know, it. Yeah, okay. Well, um, you know, this is this real- is fabulous. This PK and I need to rejuvenate. So we're going to do this. We're going to do the <laughs> Equamarine. I know you will, yes, PK, and I know I will. So we're going to start this yeah. process. Now, I also have Shungite here. And I, now the Shungite, you said it restores structure to the water. So it makes it able to hold a charge. Is that what it does? Among other things, yeah. It, it can be used as a filter. Dropping a piece of Shungite in your drinking water will not magically purify it, but it can be used like activated carbon you know, filters to, to purify water. Um, but it, it also, because of its unique molecular structure. It's full of these little molecules called fullerenes, which are complex nanotubes um, and spherules of, of carbon molecule. Their arrangement and the sort of coherent energy they, they produce, they allow water molecules to organize themselves more coherently also. Wow. Okay. Well, this would is you, see, this is great. When you mentioned about you put, you can put uh, the gemstones in a container and put it in a grid. Now, how many stones would you use to make the grid when you do something like that? At would you use least, just the four corners, or would you do more? Um, at the very least, use three. Um, it, it's hard to have a grid with fewer components than three. I suppose two could make a grid, but right. it's not a very exciting one. Um, right. And then I would use I would use what you've got. Um, you know, whether it's all the same stone or you want to make a more complex grid, a more complex flavor profile energetically if you mm-hmm. want. Um, you know, that's entirely up to you, whether you use a, a template or make it freeform, also up to you. Uh, if you look at some of the, the crystal literature from especially the 1980s, uh, some of the work of Randall and Vicki Baer, you see these really complex setups for charging water with crystals, mm-hmm. with, you know, fancy pyramids with crystals and special arrays. And so you can get really really innovative, really labor-intensive wow. grid setup. Um, I'm okay with uh, a rock right in my water. Sometimes okay, less yeah. So more, more is not necessarily better. Exactly. Good. That's good to know because we do tend at times to overdo. We, <laughs> The more we can pile in there, the more we think we're going to get out of it. And sometimes <laughs> we negate the very thing we're trying to accomplish. It's true. Yeah. Wow. Well, this is great information. And you also have in the book, which, again, the name of the book, everybody, is Stones of the Goddess, Crystals for the Divine Feminine by Nicholas. And you also have some really nice uh, recipes, let's call them. Here's one for Happy Home Charm Bag. I'm going to try this one. Blue Lace mm-hmm. Agate, Lavender, Passion Flower, and Juniper. Now, those are easy to find, all of those ingredients, Right. That was the idea behind it. I tried to make all those really practical recipes as as simple and easy to follow as you like. Um, and then the book will explain the meaning of every one of those ingredients and maybe discuss some of the best astrological timing, perhaps even give you a little um, incantation or mantra you can recite or reflect on while you make some. Um, I wanted to make it as hands-on as possible. 
Now, yes. I have a piece of jewelry that's blue lace agate. Could that be put in the bag, or does it have to be just the stone? I mean, you could definitely put that in the bag as long as you don't mind not seeing it, at least for a little while. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's a pendant that goes on a necklace. So that's why I wondered, rather than uh, wait until I could find the right stone. For sure. Good. That's good. Yeah. I'm more hopeful already. I, in fact, I already got two <laughs> bags going out of my mind. You've got some of this stuff, yeah. And I love this one, this sun goddess oil recipe that you have. The ingredients are amber, tiger's eye, golden calcite, cinnamon stick, ginseng, and angelica. That sounds great. I love that one. Thank you. Yeah, we often associate the moon with the goddess, but we have to remember that the the sun as the source of all metabolic energy on our planet is is also a life-giving energy and was once associated with the Divine Mother, too. Exactly. So we have to include that. We can't leave that out. Now, you also taught – the book has so much information. Again, it's a great book, everybody. You really should get it because it has – so much information about not just the crystals and not just divine uh, energy, but it also has these recipes, how to do rituals, all of these pieces of information that are so valuable, and it's all in one place. So this is terrific. Now, amethyst you write about, but amethyst is something we hear about all the time, but yet you're bringing that into the book for divine consciousness. So why amethyst? I think the the easiest way to connect amethyst to the divine feminine is from its namesake. So the word amethyst means not drunken in Greek. Um, <laughs> she, she maybe not a, wasn't the best party girl, but um, the idea of this myth may not be quite as ancient as we want it to be, but the story goes that there's a nymph made, named Amethyst um, on her way to make her offerings at the temple of Artemis or Diana. And along the way, she had some really unwelcome advances from, you know, the, the Greco-Roman period's most famous party boy, uh, Bacchus or Dionysus. <laughs> and, um, you know, as, as is uh, very timely today, he didn't quite understand the meaning of the word no. And when his advances were spurned, the, the nymph Amethyst cried out to the goddess. And so to be protected from the frenzied, drunken god, um, the Diana or Artemis transformed the nymph into white quartz. And two versions of the story exist from this point that kind of diverge. One is that Dionysus was so angry he smashed his amphora of wine on the stone. And the other is he was instantly sobered. He saw, oh my gosh, I did such a bad thing. The only way to make it better was, was to change this living being into stone. So he pours out the wine in a, you know, sort of a peacemaking gesture. But since the, the wine was red, made some purple grapes, it stained the quartz and turned it the color of amethyst. And so that's how the gemstone was born. Um, oh, but we see that this, huh, huh. I, I, Yeah, we see this idea of divine intervention coming from the, the goddess herself in our everyday lives, saving us from the things that, you know, we are subjected to, whether it's internal or external, um, the idea of the, the thoughts, the behaviors, the patterns we engage in that, that lower our consciousness, much like drinking might. Um, amethyst is there to highlight those things and help us transform and transmute them. Um, amethyst has been connected to other goddesses in, in history, but this is just the, the most famous episode. Yeah, that's wonderful. Now, mm-hmm. and what about white coral? Now, I was surprised to see this in here. 
So you you picked up on coral for its magical uses of protection and healing, but tell us more about why you chose that one for this book. You know, coral is an interesting one because it is organic. It's not actually a stone, although it has been considered a gem material for ages. Um, you know, coral itself being a, a living thing with that sort of calcareous skeleton is something that's always related it to our bodies and bones and teeth. You know, it's that idea of um, like attracts like or like heals like. Um, white coral in particular um, has this real lunar kind of vibe to it. It's white like the moon is. Um, and although I might not condone uh, overfishing of or over-harvesting coral populations, you can find white coral on many beaches depending on where you are in the world. Um, and it's the, the commonest variety that's out there. But it's got this beautiful motherly energy. It's also got this sense of purity, of innocence, um, and it, it brings a little bit of structure into our lives. Um, we can use it to enhance intuition and to learn how to act upon that intuition. Um, it helps us to maintain our reserves of vital energy as well. In gem therapy, um, coral in general relates to our sort of energetic metabolism. And this is in a spiritual sense, not necessarily in a biological sense, but, you know, one begets the other. Um, but white coral has been associated with the tides of life, with that eternal vibe of the great cosmic ocean, not just in the, the literal sense on our planet, but the sea of life that we all move through, which has been equated to the womb of the Divine Mother. Right. Oh, that's, mm. so no, no wonder you chose that. But we've got to talk about fairy stones. So tell yeah. us about fairy stones. These are a type of glacial concretion, most of which are coming from Canada. Um, but there's a, a similar variety that has a slightly different composition um, that comes from France. Um, and they get a lot of colorful names by um, Native peoples, uh, but they're predominantly composed of calcite, the sort of dark gray ones that we find. Um, some of them are rich in opal, and they're formed in a process of glaciation. So as these glaciers move, the sediments collect, and all the ingredients can recombine, and they form these little pieces of what look like petrified mud. And that's not far off from what they really are. Um, many of them actually resemble those sort of primitive figures that we associate with the Earth Mother, those um, Paleolithic Venuses, like the Venus of Willendorf, and the picture of the fairy stone in the book is actually one that looks like the Venus of Willendorf. Um, but they have this playful, sprightly kind of energy. They are rich and earthy. They're grounding without making you feel heavy. Um, but they, they kind of connect us to the intelligence of nature itself, whether we embody that as devas or fairies um, or even just different aspects of the Great Mother. Um, and we can use them for kind of tapping into and um, co-creating with Mother Earth and it's all of her denizens uh, a little bit more intentionally. They're also great stones for connecting to the idea of feminine power. Um, and, you know, obviously as a guy, I can only conceive of that in an abstract way. Um, and I don't want to overstep my boundaries there. But um, in Judy Hall, um, when she wrote about Menelite, which is a particular variety of them, she says that the stone reminds us that since ancient times, um, you know, all those biological processes that mark um, femininity are, are ways to draw power. And so I think in a time when, you know, femininity is often shamed or disempowered or meant to go hide someplace out of sight, a stone like this can help us claim those rights as rights of power. Wonderful. Now, Laramar mm -hmm. is one of my favorite stones. 
And it's not a hugely expensive stone, but isn't that found in the Dominican Republic mostly? It sure is, yeah, entirely in the Dominican Republic. It is a blue variety of mineral tectolite, um, which is usually not so pretty as this stuff, but add a little copper and, and we get Theramar. It's beautiful, and mm-hmm. I've always found it. I have a couple of pieces of it in jewelry. I've found it to be uh, to really create peace. If you wear Larimar, you can feel a certain level of peace, which I can understand why you have this in this book, because then it, it does very much correspond to the divine feminine. What else mm-hmm. can you tell us about Larimar? Larimar is a stone of, like, supernal nurturing. It reminds us of being bathed in, you know, maybe the warm waters of the Caribbean Sea and just letting all of your troubles float away. Um, if you've got a good relationship with mom, hopefully a big embrace from your mother would do the same thing. Um, otherwise, we can think of it in a more abstract kind of way. Um, but this is a stone, even even the color is derived from copper. And when copper shows up in the mineral kingdom, it often kind of signals the presence of the divine feminine. In astrology and alchemy, copper is the planetary metal of Venus which is one of the archetypes of the divine feminine oh, in, wow. in mm. you know, the solar system. So um, that sort of coppery vibe is diminished in the stone. There's not uh, an overabundance of copper in it, but just enough to kind of tap into that current of energy. Um, this is a great stone for when we need to learn the importance of self-care, um, when we might need to do some mothering to our own inner child or to someone else's inner child. Um, and it's just a really profound stone of, of peace, of surrender, of tranquility. That is beautiful. I love that stone. And now you also talk about Andean pink opal, which I have some of that too, and I love it. it tell, tell us about that one. What are the properties of the pink opal? So most of this material gets its color from traces of manganese. Um, and manganese is an element that allows the heart to feel safe. Whenever I see uh, manganese in mineral form, it's, it's about vulnerability and the ability to let your guard down and not, not have to be so guarded. Uh, we almost think of manganese as being the, the warrior that protects the heart on your behalf. Um, so these, these pink opals are um, just so sweet. It's a, a stone related to renewal. Um, it helps us build a deeper relationship with our sense of self. Um, if we look at how it can kind of relate to the bigger picture, it can maybe heal the rift between the human kingdom and all of nature. And it does that through the stewardship of the Great Mother. Um, we can use it for um, this time of year. You know, it is the spring equinox, and in many um, magical traditions, it's celebrated as Ostara, and this is a great stone for now. Um, it's all about that welcoming of the springtide, that current of renewal that is surging in nature or will when nature falls, at least. Um, and its mechanism is primarily related to grace, whether we suffer you know, anxiety, worry, trauma, fear, a painful past, um, you know, an unknown future, the sort of softening quality of the pink opal uh, helps to undo the, the knots that exist in the body, the mind, the spirit, and release the karmic patterning as well and allow us to just find a greater sense of tranquility. Well, I'm glad I have some of that. <laughs> <laughs> but one thing you I know, a little girl. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I need to get it made into something so I can wear it because it's, it is beautiful. But one thing I saw with it, and I don't understand why this happened, Nicholas. Maybe you can explain it. 
they were pink when I bought them. And I kind of let them sit on my counter for a while. Now they have a yellow to them. Where would the yellow be coming from? Um, a few different things could have happened. Um, it would it would depend on what happened to the stone between coming out of the earth and how you got it. Um, lots of stones get oiled to improve their, their appearance, and sometimes those oils can yellow over time. The other mm-hmm. thing is that perhaps, Perhaps it actually dehydrated. If it's in a really sunny or overly warm place, um, opals, by their very nature, contain a pretty high percentage of water. And without having Um. a crystal structure that holds that water in place, as the water leaves, it can change their appearance. They usually tend to go whitish, but but if there are other minerals present, maybe maybe they would kind of pop their heads out and show off as as yellow from that dehydration process. can Can you rehydrate them? You can try soaking it. Oftentimes that works. It, it doesn't happen across the board, um, but use some uh, like distilled water, um, something that has no, no trace minerals in it, so that way you can kind of mm-hmm. get it back to a, a neutral place. Nice. Well, uh, thank you for that. When you take different stones, the settings that you may put them in, uh, say whether you use gold, silver, or you wire wrap, say, in, in a copper or uh, um, metal, or silver metal, or something. Does that affect the strength of the stone itself? There are different schools of thought on this. Since you know, very ancient times, people have been marrying gemstones with specific metals to achieve mm-hmm. specific results. So again, it kind of depends on the school of thought you're working with. Like in gem therapy, it's thought that setting something in metal actually diminishes it. It's like insulating it so it can't do its job as well. But then if you go to like um, Jyotish, Ayurvedic astrology, they believe that enhancing the right stone in the right metal and the right amount of both will make the talisman that much stronger. So I think it's kind of case by case and a certain amount of it comes down to our our belief, how much we're invested in the outcome. And whether we're willing to gamble on which one's the right one. Well, and, you know, again, that's one of those things that we can we can educate ourselves mm-hmm. in a specific school of thought and apply those principles to what it is we want to create. Right. That's a good question, PK, because I've always heard, for example, that when you're setting lapis, it should always be in gold. But maybe that's not true. Well, I mean, if you set it in gold, it becomes more valuable, and a jeweler would love to set it in gold for you. <laughs> that. <That's true. laughs> yeah, very true. Very true. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Wow. No, notice of late they're starting to use more copper with some of the wire wraps and things like that and the different stones that I've noticed. And copper uh, bracelets, say, the different stones being attached as opposed to uh, being hand set in, into the gold or silver. And I, that's, I was wondering what the copper what type of an impact that that would have on the stone itself. Copper is, is the eternal synergist. The alchemists of ancient days called it Maratrex metallorum, which means the harlot of metals. Chemically, copper bonds with metal and non-metal alike. In other words, the, the alchemists are saying that she's easy. She makes a lot of different compounds. Um, but when she does that, she also transforms the, the materials into which she comes into contact. So, um, you know, copper is great for expanding, for connecting. It is malleable. It is a great conductor, second only to silver. Um, and again, it's it's related to that energy of Venus, which is the embodiment of the divine feminine in, in the morning sky or the evening sky, depending on the time mm-hmm. of year. So I think copper is uh, a fairly 
appropriate and neutral choice for a piece that's geared towards healing, especially whether that's physical or psychologically. Mm-hmm. It doesn't much matter. Mm. So many choices. Good to know. Wow. Yeah. Oh, I know it's me. In so little time. <laughs> I know. Well, you want to remember PK. everything, and it's so hard. <laughs> I know. Well, you and I share a love of gemstones and jewelry, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. And Nicholas, you are, have been an amazing guest, as always, uh, just oh, informing yes, us yes. on so many different levels about all of the different possibilities here. And again, we really want to recommend your book, Stones of the Goddess, Crystals for the Divine Feminine. Again, the author has been our guest this evening, Nicholas Pearson. This has just been terrific. Now, we know you. You love to write. What's your next book going to be about? Do you know yet? I sure do. I turned it in Sunday night. Oh. Um, so uh, we Good. don't have an exact release date. Um, there's not a finalized title yet, but I can tell you that it is the kind of book I wish I'd had early on in my practice with crystals. It's everything you wanted to know about the mineral kingdom, how to figure out what crystals do based on structure, formation, chemical composition, and so forth, how that matters, how to connect to the consciousness of your stones, how to make crystal grids, how to meditate with your crystals, oh, wow. and how to use them in layouts, as well as a directory of almost 200 stones. Oh, oh my, my goodness. goodness. So, well, we'll be having you back for that one. When it's coming out, we need it. <laughs> we <Yes>. need you. <laughs> Yeah, we need all of this information. Well, Nicholas, thank you so much for coming on the show tonight. We really appreciate it. Best of luck with this book and your next one. And, again, this is a beautiful, beautiful book, everybody. I mean, if you just bought it for the photographs, you would have a real gem in your library. (laughs) So thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Nicholas. It's wonderful as always. Yes, thank you so much. And next week, everybody, remember, we are going to have the detectives from the Smiley Case Killers, the hunt for justice. They will be joining us. So make sure you take a look at that series on oxygen. Join us with your questions for Kevin and the other detectives. We are going to delve into this and get to the bottom of what is. We're going to find out. And until then, We'll see you on the Blue Highway. Good night, everyone. Good night. Thanks for listening. Tune in next week for another radio adventure with Supernatural Girls.